News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Any parent who has a child who struggles with a learning disability knows how hard it is to get and to access help and also how potentially expensive it can be. That's why this morning we're talking about a new program from the Learning Disability Society called Early Risers. Rachel Forbes is the executive director with the society and joins us now. Good morning, Rachel. Good morning, Simi. Thank you for having us here this morning. Well, thanks for being here. First off, tell me about the work that the Learning Disability Society does. The Learning Disability Society is a, a nonprofit charity. We've been around for just over 50 years now, and we work with all children and youth who have suspected or diagnosed learning disabilities or learning differences, and we help support them to, to transform their lives by giving them one-to-one educational support, small group support, social-emotional learning, and a whole host of comprehensive programming that can support them, uh, setting them up for success in the future and to support their families and understanding how to advocate for them. So how can parents kind of access the help of the society? How does that work? Uh, We take referrals and we take direct applications from families. So you can go to our website, which is ldsociety.ca, or you can give us a call, 873-8139. That's 604-873-8139. And we're happy to speak with you about uh, the potential needs of your child and to see which of our programs might be a good fit. We have a a very qualified intake team that can help uh, do informal assessments and get information from you or information that you may have collected already about your child's learning and development. Right. This sounds like an amazing resource for parents out there. But tell me about this Early Risers program. Early Risers is our new early education and intervention program for children aged three to five. And what's really exciting about Early Risers is we're able to work with children, you know, as early on as we can to identify any potential learning and development challenges that they might be having, work with them and their families, their parents, their guardians to understand what those learning challenges are and to help give the resources and support and understanding to families to make sure that those children are set up for success, you know, in their preschools if they're there or going into school and school readiness. And I know a lot of that is on families' minds right now with all the disruptions in schools due to COVID and uh, with kindergarten registration happening in most districts right now this month as well. So we've assembled a team of early childhood professionals from speech and language pathologists, occupational therapists, behavioral interventionists, a kindergarten teacher, and early childhood educators to really give a comprehensive expert understanding of each child's learning and their needs and how to best set them up for success going into school. Well, that's the thing, right? Because these kids, so they would have been three, I guess, or so when the pandemic started. So they've had quite a dramatic impact. And do we do we think that that's we want them to start school on the right track, right? So they're going to need some help, probably. Of course, yeah. I mean, we're definitely seeing, as I I know you've talked about on the show before, the impacts of COVID in this generation of kids. We're seeing it in in all the generations of kids, but in a lot of our early learners that we're working with, they've not been able to be in preschools or daycares. Even they've not had the small group socialization that we often really rely on in that age cohort to develop social skills 
that really help when you go into a kindergarten classroom with, you know, one teacher and up to 20 students at a time. It's a very different environment uh, that we want to be able to prepare children for to make sure that they feel confident about school and they're excited about school. It's not something that is causing them stress or anxiety and it's something that they feel like that, you know, they're on par with their peers and they're happy to be learning. What brings a parent to you and to the society? What kind of things might they have noticed with their child? Yeah, you uh, early risers is literally for any child. Um, I have two kids under five myself, and so I've found the resources of the program to be very enlightening just to really better understand the learning and development of my child and be able to access the experts that we have. But there are certainly uh, more specific things that you might have noticed in your child, uh, things like independent skills, whether or not uh, they've been able to interact uh, in particular in an educational setting or a group class setting on their own, or do they have some more attachment issues? Do they have growth and fine motor skills issues or challenges? Um, The parent might have concerns about speech delays or speech impediments or language development. They might have concerns about a child's ability to communicate their feelings, their wants, their needs, or their ability to share and connect with others. So any of those things, um, or, or, you know, just really an interest in being able to ha- learn more about your child can bring you to us at this age. And um, like I mentioned, we do have a team of very qualified intake professionals that can help and what parents understand of, if the, which program is right for them. Right. And what kind of a difference can it make then, Rachel, if, if we say, okay, we're, we're recognizing this in a three to five-year-old, what kind of an impact can that have on their education moving forward? The earlier that we can help support a child and their family, uh, the the better the outcomes are. So I think uh, you've probably spoken about some of the the statistics that can happen when learning disabilities are left untreated or unmitigated. Um, And these are things, learning disabilities, you know, they're often invisible in our population, but there's at least a one in 10 children are challenged with a learning disability. So it's not something that anyone should be feel as stigmatized or anything, it's something that can affect all of us and, and does not have to have an impact on the educational and the and success of a child. So, but without support, uh, and the earlier we can get that support, the better, but without support, there are a lot of dire statistics around um, 40% of adolescents can drop out of high school without a uh, treatment for their learning disability. 60% uh, of adults with learning disabilities face unemployment challenges. And 75% of people who experience homelessness and criminalization also suffer with untreated learning disabilities. That's a huge number, isn't it? It is. It's staggering. But I mean, the the wonderful thing is that we do have solutions to this and we can change those statistics. And the earlier we can support those vulnerable learners in our community, uh, the better we can change that trajectory, make school, make social interactions a positive experience and uh, ensure uh, a transform live for everybody. Well, sounds like a plan to me. Rachel, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks for having us. And uh, we look forward to seeing some people calling us and applying for early risers. I hope so too. That's Rachel Forbes, Executive Director of the Learning Disabilities Society. 
Check out their website for more information about them and about the Early Risers program. Early intervention is key. We've got a very critical time now with you know kids entering school that have been fully kind of immersed in COVID the last couple of years, and here they are starting into a brand new system. So check out their website, the Learning Disability Society, for more information. on This is Mornings with Simi. Well, did you start a new hobby maybe during the pandemic? I mean, who didn't try to bake bread all the way from a starter? Maybe you tried a new sport, took up exercise. You did something to try to deal with the lack of kind of social activities and not being able to see that social circle perhaps that you normally would. Well, there's this fascinating new study that has been done that took a look at what happens to our behavior when we are bored. And you know what? Some of it is not very good. Some of us perhaps get a little too aggressive if we are bored. To talk more about this, Dr. Aaron Westgate joins us now, Director of the Social Cognitions and Emotion Lab at the University of Florida. Dr. Westgate, thanks for being here. Thank you so much. Fascinating title, first of all, an emotion lab. What's it like to work at an emotion lab? It's great. You know, we ask all kinds of fun questions that might not occur to people, like, does boredom make people aggressive? And if so, why? So I I love it. Okay, I'll ask that. Does boredom make people aggressive? And if so, why? (laughs) Um, Yes. Um, you know, it's really funny. There's all this advice that, like, you know, let yourself be bored. It can make you creative and all these things. And we're like, well, you know, is that really true? Is that always the case? Because um, from my personal experience, I know I don't always make the best decisions when bored. So we asked people, uh, you know, how bored do you get on a day-to-day basis? And how often do you do these kind of, like, not-so-nice, sadistic, aggressive things? And what we found was that the more bored people reported feeling in everyday life, the more likely, for instance, parents were likely to say that they would behave sadistically towards their own children, the more likely uh, military service members would say they would behave in aggressive, sadistic ways to their fellow uh, colleagues at work. And the more, um, the more bored you felt, the more people said they were likely to go online and like troll others on the internet for fun. So we saw all this really, you know, accumulating evidence that at least correlationally, there's this link between being bored and behaving in these really antisocial ways, presumably just because it gives you something to do. Oh my goodness. This explains so much, not just about the last couple of years, Dr. Westgate, but really about, I think, internet behavior, right? If we're just kind of scrolling mindlessly online because we're bored, people could fall into that trap. Yeah. And, you know, what's interesting that we see here is when we bring people, you know, it's not something just about bad apples here. When we bring people into the lab and make you bored on purpose, what we find is that for most people, making you bored actually does sort of push you to behave in more aggressive, sadistic ways, even if that might not be sort of your natural inclination. So you're more likely to um, punish someone by like taking money away from them. You're more likely to, in one study, we ask people to grind up worms. People are more likely to grind up worms when they're bored. So this isn't something that's about, you know, those bad people out there. It really is something more about this sort of inclination that all of us can have at times when we don't have anything else to do. I have to ask, how did you enforce boredom on your test subjects? Oh, you know, I always laugh that like studying boredom is funny because we ask participants after every study, like, you know, how was that? And they're like, you know, professor, that was really boring. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. It was. Um, So half of the participants, we asked them to watch in these particular studies we did, we had them watch a video documentary about the Alps. Like it's not the most exciting thing in the world, but it's okay. And the other half, 
in one version, they just watch a video of a waterfall. So it's literally just a waterfall, like static image, like streaming for like really? 20 minutes. Yeah, just, just a waterfall. And that's the good version. In the bad version, it's a video of a rock. <laughs> so like imagine uh-huh. you're like looking at a rock <laughs> on the ground. It's just a video of that for 20 minutes. And unsurprisingly, um, people feel pretty bored after this experience. Did you ask them to grind up worms? Uh, yeah. So, um, you know, the question always with like psychology studies is like, sure, people say that they're doing these things in everyday life, but can we actually get some like behavior to like back that up? So we brought folks into the lab and we made them bored by watching either that documentary that so that was our control condition. They didn't feel so bored. Or they watched this like really boring video of a waterfall. And during that time, we said like, look, hey, uh, while you're here, um, you see these little, there's these little cups and each cup has a little worm in it. And if you want, at any point during, you know, the video today, if you want, you can pick up that little worm and drop it in the coffee grinder we have right here for you. And then just, if you want to do that, just <gasps> drop it in. Really? I know. And just you invited them. them to be a little statistic. We, at we the, did. We kind of gave them, and, and we, we told them, you know, some people do, some people don't. So, oh you know, they, they kind of had like some implicit permission to do this. And, you know, the good news, I will tell you, most people did not grind up worms. But the ones who um, were in that boring condition, when people were watching that boring video, we did see that the number of people willing to grind up worms who would grind up one or two of those, or three, there were three total, um, jumped a lot. It more than doubled during that time. So it did look like even behaviorally, like making people bored. Most of us, I think, would think we're not going to murder little innocent worms uh, (laughs) most of the time. But Dr. Westgate, now you've got me wondering if I'm a worm grinding type of person or not. (laughs) But, you know, we're going to have to leave that for another time. Thank you so much for your time on that this morning. No worries. Thank you. Dr. Aaron Westgate is director of the Social Cognitions and Emotion Lab at the University of Florida, who did research into whether or not when we're bored, are we more aggressive and sadistic? And I would say the answer to that is yes. This is Mornings with Simi. If you know anyone who has had cancer or is dealing with a diagnosis, then you know the importance of screening. Early detection is the key. But for so many of us, that means, you know, getting in to see your doctor, talking about the screening and then follow-ups and... Well, during the pandemic, I'm willing to bet some of this self-care, okay, a lot of this self-care has fallen by the wayside. That's why this new tool that's being put out by BC Cancer is so interesting and important. Joining us now is Dr. Gina Ogilvie, the Canada Research Chair in Global Control of HPV-Related Diseases and Prevention and a professor at the University of British Columbia in the School of Population and Public Health. Thank you so much for being with us. Good morning. Nice to be here. Now, this is a cervical screening project. Tell me about this. Yeah. So, uh, you know, thanks for that intro. And I think you really nailed it. You know, one of the exciting things that has happened in cancer prevention in the past sort of 20 years is our understanding that the human papillomavirus is the cause of cervical cancer. And that's really been transformative. So that's led to, as you know, the HPV vaccine, which is preventative and primary prevention. But that only works if you get it prior to acquiring the virus. So critical to ultimately eliminating cervical cancer, which is where we want to go, is we need to also have folks screened. And now we've used the pap smear for decades, and that's been good. It's offered some good, offered some significant reductions in um, cervical cancer. But we now have a better tool, which is detection of HPV. 
And uh, British Columbia has been really at the forefront of this, looking at first some big trials comparing HPV to pap screening and showing that it was a better tool. And now one of the exciting things about HPV is that you can actually detect it, women can detect it themselves. And, And how do they do that? They actually can insert the swab intravaginally themselves and get the sample themselves. So they actually don't have to undergo a pelvic exam. They don't actually have to go to a practitioner to get that sample. So, yeah, as you said, it's a real uh, real game changer. Yeah, Yeah, it's a hassle to do that. And I'm willing to bet that during the pandemic, numbers are probably down. Well, yeah, I think that there's lots of reasons. We've actually had for many years, we have a a portion of the population that's actually really found it very hard to undergo pelvic examinations ever. So probably about, you know, we think somewhere, and this is all based on self-report, probably about 10% of women have never undergone a pap smear, and probably about 30%, even in pre-pandemic times, um, you know, are not up to date on their screening. So one of the things is we know you're not going to benefit from screening unless you go for it. So what we want to do at BC Cancer and the, the partnership of our team at the um, Advancing Accelerating Cervical Cancer Elimination in Canada is really, you know, offer tools to really improve screening coverage. Like, I would do this. I would sign up for this in a heartbeat. So how, how do we do that? So let's so so what we're doing right now and that what this project is is a pilot and it's a provincial pilot being led by the cervical screening program at BC Cancer and what we're doing right now is we're offering uh, women in certain regions of the province the opportunity to provide a self-collection. So we are uh, mailing out uh, uh, eligible participants. We're mailing them a kit, and the kit comes to their home, and then they can return the kit in the mail. And within about four to six weeks, they get they can get their results. And then that tells you if you need to be screened now five years later or if you need to go for some more follow-up testing. So right now what we're doing is focusing on certain areas really so we can really get our, our feet wet and really understand, you know, how, how acceptable is this? You know, will women send it back? How, uh, how, how does the system work? Uh, and then, you know, ultimately that can really provide information for a larger provincial rollout. Okay, so you can see this becoming something bigger. Yeah, you know, I think what we see is that we want to offer folks who need screening sort of a sort of suite of opportunities so they get the screening they need, where they need it, how they need it. And this would be a really exciting uh, way for women to get it at home. For you, you know, I mean, you've, you've alluded to this, you know, if you're busy with work, if you're busy at home, but if you're also in a rural and remote region, if right. it's difficult for you to undergo pap screening, if, you know, it's hard to access practitioners, there's a whole bunch of folks who this will be really beneficial for. Right. But I guess the key is you have to get them to do it, right? That's right. <laughs> and, and part of what this pilot is, is really understanding. I mean, the, we've worked really hard to try to make the tools acceptable, to make it understandable so that you know how to send it back, et cetera. But part of what we want to do is evaluate, are, you know, are we there uh, to, in order to really optimize and make sure people are getting the information they need to be able to then send the kit back in. Right. I know that for cervical cancer in particular, early detection is really key, isn't it? Yeah, it's one of the sort of the reasons I particularly love working in this field is that it's one of the cancers we actually really have a very, very clear natural history for. And we know what the precancerous lesions look like and we know how to treat those 
so they don't actually even go on to be cancer. So you're you're absolutely correct. Uh, early, I mean, the ultimate thing is obviously getting vaccinated because that's going to prevent the vast majority of cervical cancer. But you know, majority of women were the the, the HPV vaccine came in too late for them. So what we want to do right now is get everyone screened. And so, yeah, early screening is the key. Could this work for other types of cancer? Well, it really, you really have to, this is really focused on HPV. But the, the overall principle that you just talked about, which is early detection, and that's foundation that's based on actually understanding the natural history of cancers, uh, absolutely is a principle across all cancer screening. And we do see that with things like breast cancer and, and for instance, uh, fit testing for colon cancer. So yeah, early detection. And also the idea, uh, and you, you said this earlier on too, we're really focusing on how do we um, uh, elevate self-care? How do we elevate sort of that, that autonomy that people can have to lead their own screening? And so this is one of those opportunities. Okay, so you can, I know that in the States, I always see the ads for that, that there's other types of cancer that you can do screening for at home. So that means that we need to be more proactive, Dr. Ogilvy. Is that also going to be a bit of a challenge, do you think? Well, you know, I think what we need to do is make sure folks understand the opportunities that they have with this and with other screenings. So we, we have, for instance, for folks over 50 in the province, um, fit testing for uh, colorectal cancer. And so people need to understand the screenings there. They need to understand it's effective. They need to understand that it can change their life. And they need to, to really be supported to do that and then ultimately get the treatment. So, yeah, I think, I think the more control we can give folks, that's obviously always better. So where can we find out more information about this? So right now, as I said, this this, uh, this pilot is going to be focused on Sunshine Coast and Central Vancouver Island. And the, the BC Cancer Program is going to be reaching out to folks who are eligible. For folks who are interested, there's more uh, information at the screeningbc.ca cervix pilot uh, website. And you can learn more about that. But overall, uh, people will be contacted by BC Cancer. But, you know, watch this space because as we learn more, that's going to help us understand how we can take this forward and, and, and take the information to actually design a program that can ultimately go across the problem. I like that. Watch this space. All right. We'll do that. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for the interest. Really appreciate it. That's Dr. Gina Ogilvie, Canada Research Chair in Global Control and HPV-Related Diseases and Prevention and a professor at the UBC School of Population and Public Health. Oh, and also an advisor at BC Women's Hospital and Health Centre talking about a new cervical cancer screening project that will send the screening kit to women at home for you to do at home and then send it back and get tested that way rather than having to go in and make the appointment and do all that, which we know I think not enough women do out there. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, it happens every time we have a snowstorm, but this year seems to be particularly problematic. We're talking about potholes here. Both the City of Vancouver and the City of Surrey say they are increasing their staff to deal with the situation. Vancouver says since the beginning of January, they have responded to 50% more calls about potholes alone. Same in Surrey. It is the same everywhere. In fact, in our traffic reports this morning, you've probably heard Amber Belzer, Kim Larson talking about all the potholes that you're seeing out there. And I know there are some really bad ones. So we thought, let's find out just how crazy and busy it is right now to be in the business of fixing potholes. Joining us is Arlen Albasuzzi, Head of Operations at Burnaby Blacktalk. Arlen, thank you for joining us this morning. Hello. 
hello. How's it going today? It's going good for us. How about you? Though? How busy are you these days? Oh, we're, we're definitely staying busy, that's for sure. We, uh, we actually do both ends of the business, the snow removal and the potholes. So it's, uh, our guys barely get breaks. I can imagine. So tell me, how bad is the pothole situation from what you and, and your workers have seen out there? It's, it's, there's definitely uh, an increase in it for sure. Um, uh, it's, it's, yeah, like they said, 50% up. I, can, I noticed it all over the roads. Uh, there's definitely worse roads than others that just got missed on maintenance this year or projects overlapping that just couldn't get complete from uh, in the summer there. And, um, yeah, you're, you're seeing it for sure. Okay, so can you give us an idea, Arlen, like what happens when there's a pothole? Why do they occur? Um, they basically occur when um, freezing happens in the cracks and uh, the water gets in, freezes, and expands. And then it just starts eroding pretty quick after that point. And then once you get water underneath the layers, it's uh, it really the bond is gone, and more cars run over these, these areas, and they just become bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, yeah, it, it can happen in new asphalt at a seam point. It can happen on an old road that's just not well maintained, and obviously plows going over it. When that's all happening, it really speeds up the process. So. Right, so you're sitting at home going, all right, this is going to be a busy month. We're going to do pretty well this month. Oh, yeah. The the snow removal is around the clock, and then uh, you're trying to battle the rain to at least try to fix the potholes. Uh, But it's a temporary approach, really, at this time of year. Um, But it gets gets the job done for the meantime, and then uh, summer rolls around, and then it's time to, to fix it permanently. Yeah, how complicated is that? So tell me about the temporary approach versus the permanent fix. Yeah, so a temporary approach, you might go at it with cold patch just because you're doing it on a rainy day, um, which asphalt's typically hot. A cold patch is temporary. So there, there's that way to go about it. Or if you get a half-decent day not raining, you're just filling the hole and you're not... The proper way to do it is to cut it out, take a bigger section, tie into something that's not already falling apart. So, And then uh, the city puts bids out and they typically... Uh, they're looking for people to do full restorations to bigger sections of the road in the more appropriate weather once we're getting like plus nine degrees. Right. Um, so you're looking at you're looking at a busy spring and summer then, Arlen, too. Oh, yes. Yeah. It all laps into each other for sure. Okay. So is there a time limit on these things? Like, for instance, if there's a patch on a road, like how long is that going to last? Is that is that just a problematic area now? It, it definitely is. Yeah. That's the... It's temporary for sure. It's a problematic area just because of what they're tying into. So if it's not that patch blowing out, it's the area that was bad beside it blowing out next. And then definitely with the freeze thaw, um, it's going to pop it out again if water gets in between those areas. So Hmm. So are are, are there areas that you know of that are worse than others? Like what do you avoid as a driver? Um, I'm the road, the road I take to work, I'm fairly close to work and uh, I don't go too far away from the office myself. So I got a clear shot, but I know there's some, there's some bad areas in Surrey off Marine Drive as well in Vancouver. Um, I actually was lucky to dodge one on Highway 99, uh, going into Surrey, uh, just past 152nd. There's a really big one. I don't know if they filled it yet. But uh, that was a dangerous one. You're on a highway going real fast, and it, it pops out of nowhere. So, 
Yeah. Keep your eyes open. You're out working already this morning, aren't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're up early. Our boys meet at the shop at 6. Wow. Okay. So it's nonstop these days. Well, listen, Arlen, thank you so much. On behalf of drivers out there, thank you for getting out there and fixing these potholes. I appreciate the time. Thanks. That's Arlen Albus, who's the head of operations at Burnaby Blacktop. They are working flat out, as you heard him say, trying to help out with this pothole situation that is bad. Both City of Vancouver, City of Surrey, and I'm sure it's the case for all municipalities, say their calls are way up. People calling them saying, hey, you got to fix this pothole. You got to fix this one. And I know there are some really bad areas out there. We've been hearing about them in traffic this morning too. So if you want me to pass that along about a a particular pothole that you think drivers should just avoid this area because it can cause damage to your car. As Arlen pointed out, if more cars keep going over it, the hole gets bigger and bigger and worse and worse. Let me know where that really bad one is. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Our numbers of opioid overdoses in this province are still way, way too high. It is a public health emergency that continues unabated here in BC. Now, there's a number of different programs that try to get into this. We're we're trying all sorts of different ways to deal with the situation. But there's also a very kind of niche program that hasn't gotten a lot of attention, but I feel like it's really important if we're going to get to the heart of this, and that is a lot of the people who are overdosing are alone when that happens in a private residence, and this impacts mainly men. Let's find out what's being done about this. This program is called Tailgate Toolkit. Rory Komala joins us now as the CEO of Vancouver, the Vancouver Island Construction Association. Rory, thanks for being here. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Now, tell me about the Tailgate, Tailgate Toolkit program. It's being expanded, right? It is. Uh, the program was something we developed uh, last year in uh, participation support from Island Health. And um, we, we launched that on the island. We spent the first part of the year uh, really researching and developing the program. And we started delivering these toolbox talks uh, in late August last year. The idea behind the project is to reduce the stigma and shame that's associated with the substance use and raise awareness of pain management, uh, pathways to treatment, and other information about mental health and substance use throughout BC. And of course, we direct it. it catered and, and uh, created uh, to really address those in the construction sector and the uh, transport sector. Right. I think for a long time, this has been overlooked, right? Because you're talking about people who work every day in such a physical way that no doubt they're dealing with a constant kind of level of pain. And do you think that, you know, pain management comes into this? Well, from the research that we did, and when we started this, we, we, um, we had a... Um, an advisory group that was with people with lived experience and frontline workers in our sector, construction workers. And uh, it was comprised of men and women. And the feedback we got was that there was kind of three elements that, that really influenced uh, substance abuse in construction. And um, one of them was certainly around um, a work hard, play hard attitude. You know, uh, there are uh, young workers coming in, uh, working a hard day, going for a pint after work. And uh, certainly things can, you know, things expanded from there. Uh, If they had ample money, it was accessible. Uh, The other one is certainly pain management, as you talked about. Uh, You know, it's, uh, you know, construction can can take its toll. It's a physical job. Uh, People get injured, whether on the job or outside, and they sell it either. They have medication 
prescribed medication that uh, that uh, it runs out and they still need more and they start self-prescribing. And then the third is um, people with ex- who've experienced significant trauma in their life and, you know, they've started to use substance as a way of management, like so many people. And again, it's not a characterization of construction. This is just people from our community who happen to work in construction. Right. But that, that's the key to this this whole epidemic, though, isn't it, Rory? There's a lot of people who probably fall into this category who don't think they fall into this category that need help and that are suffering. Well, you know, part of the things that we talk about in this program is to understand what are we dealing with. We're not talking about the opioid crisis as somebody who overconsumes. I think we have a subtle different conversation happening here. What we're talking about is a toxic drug supply. And it doesn't make that, you know, having um, laced cocaine, uh, you know, people may be users and they have struggles of all their own and and that's their management. But what's happening is toxic drug supply. You could be, uh, you could not be a user and have a, you know, and I don't know all the lingo and the language, but have a pipe or something and it's laced with a a very small amount of fentanyl and, and you'll, you could die. So we're talking about a toxic drug supply. It's no different than I'm a casual. I like I like having a beer every now and then. Somebody somebody puts something in my beer and it ends up killing me. That doesn't make me an alcoholic. And what we're trying to do is try to get our workers, our men and women in our industry, to understand what does the landscape look like? Why is it so risky? And you know, maybe they'll reflect on that and say, you know what, I do have a problem, certainly with illicit drugs. I do have a problem with cocaine or heroin, and I do need to get help. And these are the places that I can go get it. So what has it been like? So since the tailgate toolkit started, um, what what has outreach been like? What has the response been like? Well, you know, we launched this with a, uh, you know, a goal of outreach to, and primarily we started with our members. And, uh, you know, they've been great supporters. But what it meant was that we have, we were able to hire a harm reduction coordinator um, and we have a small team that goes out to job sites and they present a 30 to 40 minute talk to workers on site. And for your listeners, a toolbox talk is something that happens regularly on a, on a job site. Uh, usually it's at the start of the morning. They go over safety. They may go over, you know, anything that's special happening on a job site. So our coordinators actually go to the site and, and the workers are, you know, they have to be there. They have to, they're there and they, I'm not going to say they have to listen, but what we're seeing is they're hearing and they are listening. They're, uh, you know, our coordinators will go to the site, uh, they'll have the toolbox talk, and what we'll hear is that uh, workers are coming up saying, you know, my buddy died and I really appreciate this. This is going to help. They're not saying, I have a problem, I'm going right. to, I need you to help me because it's a very private matter. But what they are saying is that, you know what, we've got a job over here. You should, you should come over here and do this talk over there as well because they'll hear about it. Yeah. And our employers are hearing. Our employers are, are, are now acknowledging that this is a problem, not for construction, but in our communities. And these are our workers. And one, you know, a loss of one worker is too much. It's about uh, so making that connection, isn't it, Rory? It is. It is. And tearing down the stigma. Um, yes. You know, we don't want people to go to work saying, I have a problem and I don't know how to get help. Uh, and have employers saying, you have a problem, so we're going to let you go. Uh, I, I don't think none of our employers want to do that. They want to help people. They want to grow their companies. They want to have a good work and good safe work environment. This, this I think is so critical to this though, because people so often don't 
they hear the stories in the news, Rory, and they think, well, that's not me that they're talking about, right? Like you seem to be running into a lot of that as well. Well, there was a lot of denial. I'll have to say there's been a lot of denial leading up to this where, uh, you know, we, I've heard in the sector that says, well, you know, that's a problem over there. It's not over here. Uh, but you talk to a worker or if you, you know, we have a, you know, we have one of our, uh, one of our committee members uh, who has lived experience, has been very articulate and vocal and, and open about his journey. And it is so real. It is, it is, it could have gone so many directions for anybody, not just construction workers, you know, people in radio. It could have been anybody that could have tipped over that line into uh, substance abuse or, or mental unwellness or a number of factors. And we haven't normalized that conversation okay. for people to get. So you'll be expanding this program then. What does that mean, this expansion? So the expansion means that we partnered with our regional construction associations and for Vancouver, the Vancouver Regional Construction Association. We have four in the province, and uh, we're partnering with them to use them as a hub to outreach into those communities. And within those communities, we've hired and we're placing uh, regional harm coordinators. And their job is to go out to job sites and present the toolkit. But there's other components to the program that, that, are, that really complement and really make it what it is. You know, the, the second element is we provide supervisor training for employers. This is the part we talk about where we're kind of talking to them about reducing the stigma. If you have somebody a problem, you don't need to fire them, but you want them to be safe and you want them, you, you, you want to have resources for them. Part of the conversation of a part of our group was to have a, an owner's group and saying, well, here's what we're missing. So we want to create that, that uh, resource so they can educate themselves on what they knew that they need to do. Uh, the third component is an industry support group. Right now, we've launched here in Victoria with the Umbrella Society. Now, they're, you know, they're, they're superbly equipped to deal with people with addictions, with mental unwellness. Uh, it's what they do. Uh, we've created a one, during you know, one night a week, we create a support group specifically for construction workers. We call it Hammer Time. And it's facilitated by frontline workers with lived experience of substance abuse. And they work with our sector to just bring awareness. It's not a. It's a. It's a non-faith based uh, uh, group. It's not. It's not a twelve-step program. But it was something that was identified early that some worker said, you know, I would have liked to have somebody to talk to in that regard. So we've done that. We're going to use that as a um, as a launch pad for the province, and then within the mm-hmm. regions, we'll create, you know, support groups within the region. I think the important part to remember is that this is a regional initiative that we have to plant in every community across BC. Yeah. And then the final thing is our resource guide. Um, we've created an extensive regional specific information and services so people know where they can go within their community and somebody in Prince George doesn't have to say, well, all your help's available in Vancouver or Victoria. We want local, accessible resources. I love that. All right, Rory, listen, best of luck with this. I hope it goes well. Thank you, Cindy. Appreciate the time. That's Rory Komala, who's the CEO of the Vancouver Island Construction Association. But if anything of what he said there, you work in the industry, you know somebody's in the industry, and you thought, boy, that hits a little close to home, all you have to do is just Google the words Tailgate Toolkit Project. And you know what? It'll come up right away. You can get more information. It's an, I think it's an amazing program. It'll really make a difference. This is Mornings with Simi. This was a big week this past week here in BC. People went back to school. Teachers went back to school. Students went back. Parents, I'm sure, were nervous about the whole thing. And it's a situation that's still being closely watched. 
concern being, are we going to see an increase in the number of cases of COVID-19 because of the Omicron variant being so prevalent and we're sending everybody back to school? Well, what about in previous waves of the pandemic and kids were in school? What happened then? Really interesting new study that is out that shows that in the Vancouver School District in particular, there was not as much COVID transmission in schools as perhaps had been thought. Joining us now to talk about this is Dr. Pascal Lavoie, who's the pediatrician and researcher at BC Children's Hospital who led this study. It's called Tracking COVID-19 for Safer Schools. Dr. Lavoie, thank you very much for being here. Good morning. How did you take a look at this? How did you examine this? So we did a few things. We we uh, analyzed public health data about COVID cases from 48,000 students and 7,000 school staff from the Vancouver School District. Uh, we conducted uh, blood testing to measure antibodies in three school districts in the Vancouver area, including Vancouver, Richmond, and Delta, to look for uh, asymptomatic infection that may not have been detected by uh, 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 public uh, clinical testing. And we also did some contact tracing. So that's the latest part that you're referring to. Contact tracing is essentially we had uh, three research staffs uh, sit in the Vancouver public health uh, offices to interview parents of all school cases to find out the origin of the infection. So um, I think what, uh, what, what what's important to point out is that when uh, kids are not in school, they're not locked up in their bedroom, so they continue to have social interactions. And unsurprisingly, what we found is that despite a high number of cases, um, uh, there were very few infection in the school setting. 90% of the transmission or the cases in the school came from outside the school. So you were able to trace that by going back to the positive cases and trying to figure out where they got COVID from, and it's not from schools. Exactly. So interviewing students, parents, teachers, principals, and so that using the same contact tracing methodology that public health uh, uh, uses uh, routinely, but in a research setting, so we can have full access to the data. So do you think this surprised a lot of people, Dr. Lavoie? Because I'm sure people, we talk about schools and the concern for spread, but you're saying perhaps that concern was uh, not as high as it should have been. Yeah, it did, because we, we uh, teachers are, uh, parents and teachers hear a lot about cases in the school, and the uh, the first thing that you're thinking, well, is these cases is coming from the school, but that actually isn't. Uh, I, I think without uh, doing the detailed contract tracing, it's really hard to tell from from just looking at the number of cases. So essentially, what the study means is that the number of cases in schools reflect community transmission. So as uh, with Omicron, as cases are increasing in the community we expect that there will be an increase in cases everywhere, including schools. But uh, so far, and the study is still continuing, uh, though we don't have a lot of you know, perspective on Omicron because it's only been a few weeks, uh, the data looks uh, like they're still the majority of cases are coming from outside the school. So that may not be make it uh, uh, any different uh, if we... Uh, whether we send kids to school or not from that point of view. Now, 
we know, I know as a pediatrician that schools is really important for child development and well-being, and that's why there's a consensus among the pediatric community in Canada, essentially, that uh, the society has should be doing everything that we can to keep schools open. But what does this say about our actual behavior, right, outside of the schools? Here we spent so much time being worried about what was going on in schools, but really it sounds like we needed to take a hard look at how we were behaving outside of schools. Possibly. I mean, that wasn't really what we were testing in that study, obviously, but uh, but I think you're right, Um uh, you know, we we forget about the all the people uh, we we are in contact with outside school, and kids need those social interactions. So um, I, I think it's not necessarily a bad thing uh, for for them, um, and uh, we we just need to keep an, a close eye on the on on the on the infection in the schools in the future. Right. You said you are continuing this research then, so this kind of intense contact tracing continues? Yeah, and we will be doing uh, a second round of blood testing in those three school districts in February, April, um, uh, sorry, February, March. So uh, we're hoping to release some new data in the context of Omicron potentially in April. Right. So what is done with this research then? What does it tell us about measures? Did the measures in schools work or is this about children not being as transmissible? Like what does it really tell us? Uh, Well, children can transmit COVID. I think that now everybody's convinced about that. No question. Um, Well, it, it does tell us that medication measures that are in place work. Um, and uh, I think we ha- we have to. I know there's a lot of debate, and but we have to trust uh, public health and school authorities that are making everything they can to to ensure the safety of our children in the school. All right. So for now, what can you tell us about transmission? How how did it happen in schools? How much transmission was there that you could see? So in that study, the contact tracing portion, and this was uh, remember at that time we were uh, Delta was well in the in the so in the population. So this was um, you know, post uh, it was with variant with the Delta variant. So uh, for example, out of two hundred and twenty nine close contact that we investigated, uh, so close contact. So we don't investigate all the contacts. We just investigate those that are likely to result in infection so that lasts a certain amount of time and distance and so on. So anyway, out of 229 contacts, uh, three, uh, we detected three infections. So that in, in itself, it's, it's a lot of contact, it's a lot of letters, it's a lot of people isolated, but what's important to look at is how many end up with, uh, with infection was a very small number. All right. Fascinating stuff. Dr. Lavoie, thank you for joining us. Good morning. Thank you. That is Dr. Pascal Lavoie, who's a pediatrician and researcher at BC Children's Hospital. And he led this study. It's called Tracking COVID for Safer Schools in BC. And they, you heard him say, they did a deep dive. We're talking intense contact tracing for all of the cases that were reported inside schools. This is in the Vancouver School District. They used this as an example. And what they found was that when they really did that contact tracing, there was far less transmission in schools than had been thought prior to that. What they found was that the vast majority of these cases were actually contracted outside 
of the school system. So we'll see if that holds up with the Omicron variant.